0: This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs, now, let's get into today's show. Today, I'm here with Matt Jezorek, who is a security leader with a very impressive background. Currently, Matt is the VP of Security and Abuse at Dropbox. And prior to that, I spent nearly seven years at Amazon working on blue teaming, security operations, and incident response at a massive scale. And today, I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome, Matt.
1: Hi, thanks. Thanks, Jack. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: Really excited. So in preparation for this, I read pretty much all your blog posts and I thought they were all really, really interesting. You had a number of them on your website about things related to security, things related to you as a professional and in your own journey. So I want to go deeper into your background a little before we kind of kick the conversation off. And I read this one part of your blog post that I want to basically just reread. So it has to do with your your work background and said, I've worked as a developer, sysadmin, network admin, Unix admin. Y2K migrator for large companies, long haul truck driver, high-rise window cleaner, chef uh, and eventually an information security professional as a pen tester, doing PCI work, incident response, forensics and then joined a company as an entry level security operations analyst. This led to incident response engineering, attack research, managing the IR team to my current role of leading a security operations center and I think this was probably several years back. But the thing that really fascinates me just in general about people is that you can spend years really getting to know other people, but you'd really never understand their journey. So based on what I just read, you've had such an interesting background, which eventually led into security. So why did you choose to stay in the field and what non-security jobs along the way made you better at security?
1: This is interesting. I want to start with like the main thing for me is taking care of my family, right? And so part of the various jobs was things like while I was a developer, the dot-com boom happened, right? And so I was one of those people that was making a good living that didn't. And so now you're back to, okay, what do you do? My kids, you know, they still expect dinner. So you do things, right? And you go and say, all right, what's out there? What can I do today? What can I pick up today while I look for the next thing? And that led me to a variety of things. I can't think of any one particular job that made me think security better, but I think all of them gave me a different perspective on both life problems and just how to to solve them. But for me, security has always been the thing that I sort of came back to because it's a puzzle. It's always a puzzle. And so like I really enjoy the grayness of security. It's not, can I build a thing? Yes. No. Right. And so my wife will tell you, I've built a lot of things. And once I know that I can build them, I stop. And so I'd never be a good product person. I can prove my point and then I can go away and go, okay, that's a thing that I can do, but I don't want to do it. But security sort of isn't that. It's always the gray. It's not a binary decision. Did you do it or not? You never get to, you did it, right? You generally only get to, you didn't do it. So I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And that's kind of why I keep coming back to security.
0: I really agree with that, actually. So the thing that's interesting that I've thought about as well in parallel to that is you can spend your whole career working on intrusion detection and never find an intrusion, which I think is so fascinating, And that goes back to your gray area of, it's not necessarily, you know, you got a breach or you didn't get a breach. It's like, you're basically playing investigator and that's why it's not black and white. And the whole job of security teams, at least in detection is, do we have enough confidence to understand that something was good or bad? And that's where that gray area comes from. So it absolutely is a puzzle. And it's a very interesting puzzle that you have to solve.
1: You're playing investigator in an arms race. Did you did the detection out there fast enough before the tactics changed are the attackers aware of what you're doing right and then you start thinking through oh i did this red team exercise and i i did x y and z and you go well that's awesome that's fantastic learning can you tell me if you're the first person to do that or the 31st and then sort of trying to just dig from there to understand so yeah it's this is always evolving puzzle nobody knows the pieces nobody knows the pieces it's next we're not really going to know the next thing it's just can you evolve
0: so going a little bit deeper into your background and still on you you know you mentioned that you really enjoy the puzzle solving or the the gray area of security and another quote that you said that i really really liked was that your career is powered by your drive not by the path that you take and i think that's absolutely true i think there's always this motivator inside of us like the why of why we're doing things and this idea of having a growth mindset is really key to keeping your career like very dynamic and fulfilling so I guess my question to you is, what is the source of that drive?
1: I'm going to do something that I wasn't expecting to do today, and I'm, I'm going to get personal and talk a little bit about my background that really powers the drive. Awesome. And it's going to go back a ways. But I had a very interesting journey through childhood. And through that journey, I was consistently told, you won't be, you never can be, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. And I think a lot of that was, if you were to look at my actions at the time, probably a fair assessment. If you just look at the actions, but I was bored in school. So I goofed off, still got A's and tests, but didn't care because I wasn't learning. I was a natural rule breaker. So I got into a lot of trouble when I was a kid. And that trouble led to eventually me getting kicked out of my own house when I was a teenager, young, about 14. Various reasons don't need to go into why, and there's really nobody's fault, right? Eventually, that led to legal trouble, and I was incarcerated for a little while. But all along, I kept going, what people said about me is not true. And so I refused to believe what others said, but that also means I got a chip on my shoulder. And so I always, every time I go into a problem, I go, you can't give up. Somebody said you couldn't do this. And you got to prove them wrong. Now, is that healthy? That's debatable. But that is what powers problem-solving for me, understanding. And it allows me to think about myself in a different way. I really like feedback. I really like when somebody gives me feedback on me because it allows me to understand and grow. And so I don't take things personally, right? And so it's just this always constant, like, how am I better tomorrow than I am today? in everything I do, but it all really comes from sort of that chip on your shoulder of somebody saying, you can't do it. And if you listen to them, they're right. If you don't listen
0: to them, they're wrong. Do you think that that drive evolved over time? So, you know, it seems like you had this history, but then after overcoming that, like, did that evolve as your career sort of took hold and you became very successful and worked in these incredible companies, do you think the source of that drive, like kind of changed into something, something else?
1: I don't know, probably, right? Environment always dictates things for you, right? So as your environment changes, obviously you change with it a little bit. And I'm so far beyond where I ever thought I'd be. So it really is like, now it's not about what can I do for me? And it's how do I take that for others? What do I do with others? So drive has changed a little bit to more sharing versus me being better. But the interesting thing is, a leader, the more you teach others, the more you you know you start to to grow anyway. So mm-hmm. it's shifted away from sort of a little bit of the how do I prove others wrong into how do I help others prove others wrong.
0: Hmm. So on the topic of helping others, I mean I think that security is very relevant for this, right? Because the whole job of security is to protect others. Right. It's like if we think about why we do what we do every single day, like why we're a leader Leadership could be around growing others, right? You're not responsible for the results, you're responsible for the people responsible for the results, right? And then just security as a whole is all about this idea of protecting data, protecting people from adversaries and attackers, and, you know, convincing people in the organization that security is important and this is why we need to think about it. So I'm curious a little bit about your experience and your background as you know, you evolved into a leader. I guess like what did your time as an engineer teach you about influencing? others about security and really convincing them that it's something they need to care about.
1: It took a lot of time to hone this. As an engineer, I kind of started with, it's black and white, you're right or you're wrong, right? We need to do it this way or we need to do it that way. That didn't lead to very fruitful conversations. And so you sort of like learn, how do I, how do I get this done? And how do, I, how do I help others? But if you pause for a moment and step back, And look at what humans are doing and and how, what they're trying to accomplish. They're all really, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. You know, your developers in the company are not set out to harm your company. They're not. They want to do the right thing. And so it starts to be like, how do you get them to do the right thing? How do you get them, how do you incentivize them to do the right thing? And a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, we got to make them do this, or we should penalize them if they don't pass some security test or, you know, all these little various things where people talk about incentivizing. And I actually wonder if you just make, help them grow, help them understand the problem. Would they just do the right thing? Because that's what they want. They also don't really want to have a conversation with us. And so like, generally when we have those conversations, that's not an interaction they're normally looking for. So if you can make that a positive by helping them grow instead of just telling you you did something wrong, you can make this better. So to me, it's about expanding that knowledge, Right. I don't need to say that it's right or wrong or this is a vulnerability or not. We can talk about what it leads to, why it's not helpful for our customers. We can talk about how we can avoid it and we can talk about how we can do better, but we just have to leave the fact behind that like the the thing happened. So to me, it's about getting and using those intentions that people want to do well. They mean well, that doesn't mean a hundred percent, but people generally mean well. So just help them understand. And I think it's the same for executives help them understand a problem in a different way. Security, we tend to talk about technically. It's a business problem. They can choose to invest or not, but then you need to be able to educate them on how that investment looks, not the technical changes you need to do or not like you can get compromised, but start to get into like, what are the business outcomes? How can you help make the business move faster? How can you help make the business safer? And how do you do these things and get all these other impacts? Do you give them a better developer experience, etc.? you can start to educate. And I think that education gets that buy-in better. It's just harder,
0: slower. How do you think about doing that education? So obviously you're only a single person. You can't, you know, do that forever yourself. So how does that scale?
1: Well, how does anything scale as a leader?
0: You have to teach others.
1: That might be why it's slow, right? Like I have times when I'll stop and we'll talk with folks and go like, is this the right approach can we do this in a way that shares a different perspective? Can we provide it in a different format? Can we do things that, that are a little bit different here to sort of show people that by through that education, because if you can get other people to also go out and educate, that's how you have to scale. There's two ways to scale in life, in my opinion. You can either, you know, scale yourself and that could be like, I'm writing code or I'm doing this thing myself, or you can teach others how to scale, right? And if you can, then so like, that may be through writing a document about a problem and teaching somebody else how to solve that problem. It could be sitting down and having a conversation that just sort of changes the perspective. So I think there's like the two ways. So it's either you, can, you do it yourself or you teach.
0: And so I just choose to teach. What really caused you to make that jump from becoming a technical engineer to wanting to be a, a manager and then eventually you know, a leader? Scale, problem size.
1: As a single engineer, even as a lead engineer, I'm really only going to work on a problem so much. I don't get to work on the entire grayness of the problem because when you talk about this, the grayness of security, that's in the technical terms, but also the humans that are operating, it has grayness. And so you don't really get to work on the full problem, including, you know, the human complexity of just interacting and solving the problem. How do you get people to work together that advances your solution? Even that complexity is interesting partially because even studying that complexity allows you to understand just humans better, which allows you to understand more and more about growing. So what took me to that is like, I want to work on bigger problems and you can only work on a problem so much, you know, in that space with just, at least from my perspective, staying as an engineer.
0: How do you stay close to the technical elements of security or at least understanding new attacks and keeping up as a security leader, right? You have to understand what's happening in the environment. I think it's as a leader, also, you can get very focused on just like the organization. But what do you do to zoom out from that?
1: Ask questions, read. Do a lot of reading of, you know, I try to stay onto the news. I understand, look at every sort of news article is a way to pause and take a moment and, and reflect on, could this happen to me? Where are we in our environment with this similar problem? What would this look like? And so then being able to go and have those using that information to talk to the various aspects and engineers and the team, it allows you to sort of keep digging and diving and understanding but not at the level of like i'm not going to go out and do forensics tomorrow probably not going to write you your next detection and then on the side i just also still write a lot of code
0: and solve some of my own problems and play with my own research so let's shift gears a little bit and talk actually about detection so i mean the whole idea with why i started this podcast was really to talk about a really challenging element of security, which is handling all this different signal that we have, trying to make it a little less gray. So mm-hmm. when you think about building effective detection at scale, you know, you've know you worked at Amazon, you're currently at Dropbox, and I think that the those scales are so unique in that there's really maybe a handful of others like it in the world. I mean, Amazon especially has gotta be the biggest. I can't think of a single one that'd probably be bigger. So what's your strategy for really building detection at such a massive scale just broadly
1: broadly a couple things and i'm gonna hit on a couple various areas but one i'm gonna hit on a value that i have when it comes to detection and i apply this value when i look at products and that's the value of agility i want to be able to move and the reason i need to be able to move is because i don't get to pick time and place i just have to act and so i really start to think about am I going to be agile with this tool or is this detection agile? Does it change with time? Time is just a thing of a snapshot of now. So I start to think about how do I maintain movement forward in everything I do and agility and like being able to do it rapidly. But I also know that since the only thing that is constant is change, like a plan for change, plan for constant change, like don't expect anything to be static. You know, when you start thinking hey, I have a machine inventory from 24 hours ago. You no longer really have a machine inventory, right? You have what the network looked like 24 hours ago. And so plan for that. Understand those gaps and like, what is your the fidelity on the information you have when you start making decisions and thinking about it? But you need to be able to do that because you have to maintain your most important asset. And that's the humans on the other end. And so I can give you, at one point in my career, somebody came to me and said, I need more people. My response was, I'm sure you do. Everybody does. Why? I got 16 million unviewed un- alerts or whatever. You don't need more people. You need a better solution. Right? So we sat down and looked at it and said, what's the time that you want to look at those? And they're like, well, we need to look at every alert, every alert every day. Yeah. Okay. Well, with the current amount of alerts you're getting, you need the entire US Marine Corps. So how do we hire them? So like you start to think about it and go like, I can't do it. It's not something possible. And so you have to maintain that the ingenuity that humans have is so valuable, we can't waste it. And so like filter, filter, filter. The interesting part about that, though, is what we need to collect is counter to that. We need to collect everything, right? We need to understand the entirety of the environment. Why? Well, because we know a little bit about what people are going to do. We don't know everything about what they're going to do, but so we got to collect everything so we can see or so we can do a response. But how do, you make, how do you make sense out of it? And so for me, I think about it through the sense of, like, signal. I want a lot of signal. I don't want a lot of noise. And so, like, signal doesn't need a person. signal. is just signal. And so you start thinking about if somebody uses a copy command, it's okay. Right. But I may want it to know when they're doing it, copied coupled with like SSH and coupled with a couple other things. Right. So you can collect that signal, but don't look at that signal. Take that signal, combine it with a few other things, and start to get really well understood TTP coverage of actors. There's a couple of benefits there. When you start to do that, you at least start to understand a little bit more about what you're dealing with as you go forward. But you're not crushing your humans than the souls of them. Like the folks on the front lines of many of the sort of detection and response teams are just get crushed every day. And the moment something goes wrong, everybody goes, you missed something because they did guaranteed. They did. Why? Because they got 16 million of them. And so it really comes down to like, how do we protect the humans? Which means we got to do automation. And everybody talks about, oh, we're going to automate everything. We're going to automate away people's jobs. And I go, let's just start with automating away the things we don't want to do. Let's start automating the things that we do a hundred times a day. Let's see if we can do it ten times a day instead. Because you can't automate away, you're never gonna automate away everybody's job. But we can automate away the routine. You have an alert. What do you do? Well, I need context. So I'm gonna go over to this CMDB. I'm gonna get the configuration of these things that I have this alert on. That should be automated. You should never have a human do that. But Then you go back and say, well, tools, some tools don't give you that API access. Then great. Like just stop buying them, get rid of them, move to something that does. That's easier said than done. But like, we have to get to that point where we can do it. The only thing we have in our favor is time. So we can't waste it. And then I think the last thing that I see too many people do is they try to boil the ocean. I'm going to get hundred percent coverage on the MITRE attack matrix. Great. Who cares? Like, let's boil it down a little bit more. You get 100% of your coverage and you have almost no Windows machines. Why do we spend so much time covering your Windows things? Do we care all about those? And so, like, start to think about these problems more as I got it as a coverage problem and start to think of them more as this is a problem that I want to know about. Whenever this thing happens, I want to know it happened. That could be a practice you want to seek on. It could be a uh, signal, but you can't like, if we continue to try to boil the ocean, we're not going to get where we need to be. And so start focusing on those smaller problems, get them down into use
0: cases and run with those use cases. In a lot of ways, you, you're going back to first principles, right? It's like, what matters the most? Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Where are the crown jewels. Let's make sure we have every single angle of that covered and we know for a fact that it's okay.
1: Yeah, because what you are assuming today when you work through that is going to change tomorrow anyway. Oh, I got every joke point. No, you don't. They just spun up a new pop. It's over there. It's got this new connection you didn't know about for whatever reason, right? Wrong or indifferent. And you don't know it's like this new level of access or new way or something else because that changed. But if you start saying, I'm going to know every change around my crown jewel, you can start to really protect that because that's what matters. I think security maybe maybe this is just from doing a response and stuff but I, I don't think that we can totally prevent anything but I also don't think that I want to give up and so it's what can I seed what ground can I seed how do I take an attack how do I absorb something without having that impact how do I reduce the impact on the customer but allow like I know that things are going to happen Failure happens and so it really now comes it back down to like resiliency for me of just like thinking through those terms of how do I just absorb this and but reduce impact. And so crown jewels is where I do that. This is the thing that I can't have impacted.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing about you as a leader that I really respect is that I think you have a very high level of rigor and you're kind of like a no excuses kind of person. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that's the problem. Why is that the problem? Like, don't give me a reason why we can't do it. Just figure out another way to get it done. And it actually reminds me of uh chapter from a book I read last night. It's called uh, The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger. And he talks about how when he was working at ABC, the guy who was his boss was basically like, hey, we need to go to North Korea to shoot this ping pong tournament. You need to go. And he's just like, I have no idea. Like, there's no way. But because he knew his manager was just such a hard ass, he was just like, I know he's going to refuse anything that I say, so I'm going to find a way to do it. And I think as a leader, it's such an interesting balance right because you never want to like make people fearful of their job it's more of like i want you to really try to figure this out and i'm not going to accept mediocrity and it's a very different perspective than like if you don't do this it's going to be a consequence so i think it's important in security to have that as well because the consequences are really serious right if people don't do that job or if they have you know a million alerts a day they are going to miss the thing that's important and you do kind of have to be that, that level of, of stern and you have to be very rigorous with like how these programs are developed. Because at the end of the day, it's all about reducing that risk and making sure that you don't end up on the, in the headlines, right? And that can be a very scary feeling. There's a lot of people and, and data and money at risk there, so.
1: What am I negotiating with? If I go in and say, hey, I can't do it. Well, what am I really negotiating with? I'm negotiating with the customer trust. I'm saying I couldn't find a way for expediency. I couldn't find a way because it was hard. I couldn't find a way for whatever reason. And because of that, I'm going to trade customer trust. That doesn't seem like a position I want to do. And so it's not about that, right? It's about how do we maintain and continue to earn that? And so that means we have to do hard things. We have to change the things that we didn't think were changeable. Why? Because our customers expect it. I expect it. I'm a customer, right? Everywhere I'm at, like I'm a customer of that for some reason. You know, I've been using Dropbox for years. I had that, that was like my early like tech. Oh my goodness, I don't have to have a USB. So I'm a customer. What do I expect? Well, I expect them to meet the basic obligations. And I expect that like, when you think about it, there's a promise. And I expect them to keep that promise. That's it. And so customer trust is one of those things that we shouldn't negotiate with because something's hard. If it's hard and it maintains customer trust, that sounds like a valuable thing to solve. So let's go solve it.
0: How do you know that you're doing a good job as a leader, especially in security? Like, what are you looking at that says, yeah, we're in a good place? Whether it's like a dashboard or a metric or whatever that gauges it. And yeah, you're laughing and smiling because it's like, it's not black and white. (laughs) But, you know, there's some signal that we can look at at least to gauge that we're like going in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at a variety of things. A lot of them are just pure hygiene. Like, or am I keeping up with the known? And the known to me is a hygiene problem for the most part, right? Like, I know there's a problem here. We have whatever, whether it be a patch or I need to do something. We know there's a mitigation. We can go do it. That's a known. Or whether we know, hey, this is a tactic. We can detect it. It's a known. And so, like, the knowns, I kind of think about process. And what is the program around that known? And then what is the measurement of that? So, you know, if it's patching or, or hygiene, it may be an SLA, compliance against SLA? Are we meeting the things that we've objected? You know, if we said, hey, we want all critical things patched in 24 hours, and that's our stance, just are we meeting it? That way I know. But then if something comes out tomorrow, I don't need to go bother my team. Because within 24 hours, it'll be naturally taken care of. And so it's about, and that helps me also reduce the noise back to them. And then when I look at sort of the detection and response phase, I have some aspirational things that I want, but they're hard. So they're fun to do. And sort of my aspirational metric there is this one ten sixty 60 rule, which is in life, you got about a minute to detect things have gone wrong because you need to be able to add context. You need to be able to get it to a human. You need to be able to make a decision. And we know impact is fast by actors. And so you have a minute to sort of detect. You have about 10 minutes to contextualize so that you can make a decision and you have approximately about 60 minutes to contain. That's really too slow. I've seen things go from sort of initial exploit to customer impact within 17 minutes. So we're now talking 71 minutes with a 11060, but we can do it with, you know, other mechanisms. Now, I'm not looking at that from a whole program perspective. Like I said, we can't boil the ocean, but you can look at it through your use cases. Does this use case have enough value to go into that 11060 model? Why? Well, detecting on a minute is expensive. Contextualizing that's probably going to be somewhat expensive. And then being able to know that this is the priority thing that I must do. So if I send it to a human, I'm asking them to do that now. And so you can look at each use case of that. But the real metric I care about that going back to agility is how fast can I deploy a detection? If something happens today, with how many hours is it going to take me to understand if it happens again or if it's still happening? Right. Cause now I'm in that response mode of a thing occurred. How fast can we get a detection out? Those are some of them, but it's just, I look at each unique problem. Like, what's the abuse? I oh, have metrics across abuse. I have metrics across various elements of security, but around detection and response, it's really about how fast can you detect and, and respond accurately.
0: Yeah. Time is, again, the most important concept here. And I say that a lot, actually, from the perspective of an entrepreneur, I say that. Hey time is very important for a lot of reasons. Time is important for the product that we build, it's important for the organization that we're creating. And when you're in this really sort of crazy minutia of things are happening constantly, you have to very carefully pick and choose how you invest that time. And it's the thing I always come back to and it's it's the one constant we all share, right?
1: I think really it's the only thing that we control at all. We can control it all. Mm-hmm. As far as from a security perspective, I can control how long we're vulnerable. Now, whether or not we can meet the objectives or not, like that's a thing that we can control if we choose, at least vulnerable to known things. We can make decisions that enable us to control how fast we detect things. We can, like, that's the variable that we do get to control because we don't get to control the motives. We don't get to control the reason that an attacker's here. We don't get to control that person's budget but we can then manage the time that they're in our environment. You know, if we went ephemeral, now we can manage a timeline to how long somebody can maintain persistence in an environment. So I think that's the only really like thing that we get to manipulate of the attacker that's within a shared control because it is a shared timeline.
0: So I wanna go back a little bit to your, your blogs. You had this one quote that I really liked and I really wanted to talk about it today. So you talk about this lifelong journey of continuous learning combined with goal setting And you say, you know, I'm really looking forward to this new year. I'm looking forward to every moment of it, including the downtimes where I grow and learn far more than the uptimes. And I'm curious about if you can describe one of those downtimes, maybe without giving specific context, but I'm curious, like what were one of those downtimes that had happened in the past that you really came out of it and you, you felt like you grew a lot as a leader or as an individual?
1: I won't go, I can't go into too much detail on this, but I'll be like, let's talk humans. They generally leave jobs or managers, not, not necessarily job. They leave for various reasons due to management. I learned a lot from bad managers. And so I don't even need to get into details necessarily of each one or specifics, but like when you find yourself in a rough patch where you're looking and saying, I really don't like how I'm being led, then You ask yourself the next question, what do I want to see different? And that happens at all levels, you know, at any company, even you, you're led by your customers, right? And if you don't like it, it's your time to start figuring into like, how do I make this better for the next person? How do I make it so that nobody else experiences this experience that I'm experienced that I don't like for whatever reason. And so I think just taking every time you're uncomfortable and understanding why am I uncomfortable and have I ever put somebody in the same position And then if you say yes, then just commit to changing it. But when I'm, when I have a good experience and somebody walks away and they're super happy, yeah, I walk away happy. I had a great time, but I'm not necessarily sure I learned. And so like to me to learn, I have to experience that. I have to be uncomfortable. I have to be available to be uncomfortable.
0: I have felt that way so many times in my career. So it resonated with me so much. I always say that if you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not being challenged enough.
1: Absolutely. And there's the learning curve, right? Like if you go back to the learning curve, when you start to get comfortable, you start to plateau. And like you first, when you get uncomfortable now, there's probably a little dip because you're uncomfortable. You're probably not acting the way that you want, but as you learn that new thing or that new responsibility or, or expand, you now start to go up. But the thing is, you're going to bypass that plateau. You're no longer going to be at that plateau you were at because you've added this new thing. And so you're going to go up and you're going to plateau again to so find your plateau, find out why get yourself uncomfortable again and keep learning so like get comfortable being uncomfortable
0: yeah (laughs) I mean as someone else also working out out here in a you know Silicon Valley company I think that's what we all have in common and I think that's that's kind of why we get so far and we build these big companies is because it is constant discomfort it's we're pushing ourselves at an insane rate to do something incredible and you have to go through that level of discomfort
1: well yeah or you won't grow You're not pushing yourself. If you're only reaching to the outskirts of your box and not pushing through that box, like you're not going to grow. And really people are only going to like, if you can reach it, it's comfortable. So I just, just keep going and look, that's going to be ups and downs. You're not going to get it right. Every time, nobody's going to get it right. Every time it's going to suck. Some days are gonna be bad. There's going to be some days that are good, but remember we're on this long timeline. So today is only a moment.
0: Have you read the infinite game? No, you should. I think you'd really like it. It's all about this, this idea of living your life and working towards things for a just cause. So for example, you know, instead of just writing a detection because your boss told you to, it's more of like, no, 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 I'm going to write this detection so I can protect our customers. So I can help our executive team accomplish some goal of pushing the business forward. Or it's like, it's some goal or some authentic sort of cause that we work towards. And it's by Simon Sinek. And he talks about this idea of like an infinite time horizon and like, you know, when you're playing an infinite game, it's a very different mindset than a finite game, which basically has more superficial outcomes. Like, you know, I'm working at this job just to make money versus, you know, I'm working at this job because I wanna push myself, I wanna learn, I I wanna experience this growth in some way. So I mm-hmm. think you should read it. I think you'd really like it.
1: I think I've heard bits and pieces of it. And if I remember correctly, it talked a little bit about how an infinite game has no rules or they're yes. not like known rules. Well, that's life, right? That's exactly. That's I
0: mean, the book is a big metaphor for life, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, you hit my biggest trigger, right? Like if people want to see me go off the deep end and they just said I do this because my boss told me. And I'm like, that's just not a good enough reason. I don't yeah. care that your boss told you, why are we doing it?
0: Yeah, the why is so important, especially as a leader. You need to be able to convey, hey, this is the reason that we're all going to do this thing together. And mm-hmm. this is the outcome that we want. And this is how we're going to do it. Or this is not so much how. The leader is not in charge of the how. It's more of like, this is why we're doing it. And now my team is going to figure out how we're going to do it.
1: And this is where we'd, I'd like to see us go to. This is where I think we or believe we can
0: achieve this has been great, by the way. I could probably talk to you all day. <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, I think we have to wrap it up. So I think to sort of end, I'd love to hear three pieces of actual advice for security teams that are working really hard to protect customers, do their jobs effectively, and, and ultimately just protect the organizations that they're working for.
1: Do the basics, plan for failure, and match your actions with your words. I can go into detail, but you said quick, so...
0: I mean, I kind of like that as it was. I mean, do the basics. Yep. Plan for failure. Plan for failure. And, and match the actions with your words.
1: Just do what you say you're going to do. Just match your actions with your words. You know, if you say, "Hey, customer trust is our number one thing," then make make it your number one thing.
0: Absolutely agreed. All right, sir, so I'll leave those three up for interpretation for everyone yep. listening. But uh, this has been an awesome conversation, Matt. Thank you so much for taking the time and for going deep into all these things and for sharing things that I probably would have never learned about you unless I asked. So I appreciate that. It was great. I'm generally an open book. If people ask, I'll normally tell them.
1: But I just enjoy talking to people and and sort of hearing other people's perspectives and and learning from them. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with
0: me today. Of course, man. Looking forward to talking to you soon. You too, cheers. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by Detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks, see you again next time.